there are moments in our culture where the cries of our collective hearts actually declare what is absolutely true. There was a moment like that, June 25th, 1967, 56 years ago. It was just when TV satellite technology was taking off and several satellites were put up and an entrepreneurial concert host kind of person got to thinking about that and thought, wow, we could, for the first time, connect 25 countries together and host a concert that everyone could see at the same time. Well, of course, it's 1967, so you invite the Beatles, among others, to come. And John Lennon wrote a song for this concert called Our World. Some of you are a little bit ahead and are humming it now in your own mind. He wrote, of course, the song, All You Need Is Love. And the song debuted on that day and was seen in that 25-country satellite network. I don't know if you've thought about that song in this way, but it was a cry from a culture that actually spoke volumes about the aspiration in our hearts that God made us for himself. It's true. All we need is God's love, positioning us in the security of relating to him. All that makes for a healthy church, and isn't that the project we are working on together here at Calvary? All that makes for a healthy church is the love of God so dominating us, having been recipients of his love, that we reciprocally relate to each other. And we're all hit in these relationships with the overspray of God's great love for us. I love Paul's language when he talks about the glories that God, here's his word, lavishes on us. Jude 1.3 speaks of great love that God has shared with us. We certainly see that from Good Friday. So as we think about that this morning, I want to ask, are we a healthy church? Because from these verses in Romans chapter 12, we're going through the book of Romans. We have come to Romans 12 this morning, 9 through 21. As we come to these verses, we ask, how deeply has the love of God made its impression upon us? Come with me to this great chapter this morning, Romans 12. You'll remember that Romans 12.1 begins like this. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, based on the mercy of God, the mercies of God, it's plural, 
that you present your body as a living sacrifice, this holy, acceptable unto God, your reasonable service of worship. So we open to Romans 12 after the first 11 chapters of a clear explanation of the good news about Jesus. Okay, in light of these mercies, we present our bodies to the Lord. We present our lives in sacrifice to him. Say, well, what now, Paul? Well, in verse 6, and we looked at this last week, having gifts, let us use them. So one of the things we do is we present to God the gifts that he has given to us. What do we have that we have not been given? Say, okay, I, I, I got that in mind. We're to present the gifts. But then he turns to talk about this presentation of our lives to the Lord inexorably begins to define how we relate to each other. Romans 12, 9 through 21. May I read it to you this morning from the English Standard Version? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Hear the word of the Lord. Now this morning, I want to go two different directions. First, I want to ask a question. Is Calvary a great church? We'll look at three great church descriptions from these verses and think about that question. And then secondly, the second direction we will go is we will unpack what a healthy gospel culture looks like. If we are asking what is a vital, healthy, robust church, 
then we better know what we're looking for. And Paul lays out quite an agenda here in these verses. So let's go after it together. First, is Calvary a great church? What's the answer to that question? Now let's look at three great church descriptions. First, great churches have their gospel doctrine right along with a matching gospel culture. Great churches have their gospel doctrine right along with a matching gospel culture. Now here we come again to Paul's explanation of this good news of great joy for all people. A Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. He loved us and gave himself for us. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. Oh, the glory of the story of Jesus Christ. And we have to get that right. And Paul goes through a rather meticulous explanation of this great plan of salvation. That's Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Then he goes into a deep dive of the promise to Abraham that through him all the world will be blessed and how that all worked out. That's 9, 10, and 11. We have 11 chapters of an explanation of the good news about Jesus Christ. For anyone who wonders whether or not the church should be clear on the gospel, Paul accented it for 11 chapters in the book of Romans. But then we get to chapter 12 and verse 1. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, based on the mercies of God. He's reflecting upon everything that he's explained. This is the pattern in the book of Ephesians 2. Hold your finger in chapter 12 of Romans and turn quickly to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. The same pattern's in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Paul describes the glories of what God unfolds about his grace. In fact, it's so glorious that he stops several times to pray before he gets to the end of chapter 3, right in the text. And then we get to chapter 4 and verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What's going on? Well, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are going to be the practical implications of this so great a salvation that he's described in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Now, Calvary Baptist Church comes from a long tradition of those kinds of churches who wanted to get the gospel right. Being orthodox, getting the gospel right, being clear on what it means to know Jesus Christ as Savior. All of those issues have been very important to Calvary in its history. So much so that if this morning um, you would hear me say something which you felt like deviated from a line of clear gospel orthodoxy, I would hear from you. Even if you thought that I was deviating from a clear line of gospel orthodoxy, I would hear of your thoughts. Most all the time, most lovingly shared. But that's a tribute to a place that wants to be clear on the gospel. Uh, And of all things to be clear on, if we get that wrong, we have nothing to share with our broken world. So we need to be clear on gospel orthodoxy. I'm, I'm for it. But the tragedy is many churches stop there. So they want to be big on gospel clarity, 
And they're kind of small on the development of gospel culture. You say, Eric, what's culture? Culture is the fabric of how we relate together as God's people. A subtle subtle tool of Satan is to get a church patting its back saying, tell you what, our doctrinal statement's really good. Tell you what, we're clear on the gospel. We know what the gospel is down there at the Baptist church. We got that all down. That's fine. And it's super essential. But when the gospel so grips our life, which is it not an expression of the profound love of God for us in Christ Jesus? When that grips our life, it shapes how we relate to each other, which is our gospel culture. And that's what Paul's talking about in these verses. Working to be clear on the gospel is essential, but a natural follow is a gospel life. Don't be deceived. Right gospel is to translate into right living in a healthy church. Do we betray our gospel clarity here at Calvary Baptist Church with our gospel culture? The second great church description we need to think about is a great church, a great church relates well by loving and honoring each other. Look at verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. We're going to come back in point two and we're going to look at some of these. But the two big words are love, look at verse 9. Let love be genuine, look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Look at the second half of verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. So you have these two concepts, two rails upon which a gospel culture runs. The love of God in Christ shared and a people zealous to outdo each other in contest of who can honor the other the most. If you're doing that, you have quite a great church. This passage is about relating within the church from verses 9 through 13. And there's some allusion to that down below Uh, never be wise in your own okay live in harmony with one another verse 16 but primarily verses 14 through 21 speak of how to relate to people outside the church who don't own the faith and are putting pressure on you how do you respond to them that's next week's message don't forget the two overarching concepts then are love and honor So a good exercise is just to look around the auditorium this morning. Who's here? What's your disposition toward them? Is it fair to say, as you look around the room, that the two virtues that shape how you relate to those people that we look at as we look around the room, the two virtues are, I love them. And I honor them. In fact, this whole honoring thing is better. It's like I'm in a contest to out-honor them. The third great description of a church is a great church knows how to suffer and respond to its enemies. In a broken world, I mean, they killed Christ. What would we expect? They're going to resist our faith in him. Our efforts 
for him. In a broken world, everyone suffers. Everyone is fighting battles. Many of the battles are battles of suffering. Again, we'll look more about how to face hostility from without this morning. Our focus is kind of on how do we cultivate life within. How do we respond to slights, insults, treachery, put-downs? How do we respond when we're cheated? Jonathan Edwards said one of the distinguishing marks of true spirituality is perseverance through suffering with joy and faithfulness to Christ. We're going to come back and look at this in just a moment again. How do we tell who the authentic are? Watch them suffer. Better, watch how they suffer. Is Calvary a great church? Let's keep thinking with point two. What does gospel culture at a great church look like? The short answer is the church looks like Jesus. In a tight few verses, there are 10 imperatives, 10 commands. Uh, Someone has observed in all Paul's writings, he has never consolidated so much of a charge, these 10, in such a few verses as he does here. This passage is a measure unique. He frames the glory of the call to healthy relating and defines it as holiness and love. Are we relating in a healthy way? Seven frames of healthy gospel culture. If we have had a long history in practicing clarity of gospel doctrine, then what does gospel culture look like? And let's put those two together. Seven frames. We won't deal with all of them equally in time. First, it looks like genuine love. What does healthy gospel culture look like? It looks like genuine love. Verse 9, let love be genuine. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, Jesus said. Because on Sunday morning, the garage door opens, you get in your car, some of you carry your Bible, and you drive to church, and you get out of your car, and by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. Is that what Jesus said? By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. You know, you have Jesus bumper stickers on your car, and you know, your light things you hang on your window where the sunlight comes through, that they're Jesus things, and you got crosses around. And so that, that, that's, that's how people know you are a disciple. No, Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciple, that you love one another. Love one another. Here he speaks of genuine love arguing that there's a lot that feigns to be love for each other that is not genuine. Genuine. The idea is sincere, unhypocritical. And here he uses a word that actually comes out of first century theater vocabulary because in the first century they get up on the stage And the thespians, the actors, would simultaneously be several characters at once. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, you do it with two sticks and a mask. So when you're this character, you hold the mask up, 
And you speak and say, okay, that, 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 they're that character. And then when you're the other character, you put it down and you, you hold the mask up with a stick. That's this word. Uh, from which we get the English uh, taunt or derisive comment, two-faced. Uh, because you, you, at one point, you're this person. At the next point, you're this person. Do you know that there's a long habit of Adam's children being this way before someone? <laughs> and when they're not around them, this way around them? Paul said, have a sincere love that's not hypocritical, that's not two-faced, that's sincere, that's answering face-to-face together in truth. It's not fake. It's not disingenuous. It's not a friendly image before you when deep down you actually harbor ill will and animus toward that person. One said, it is difficult to express... How ingenious almost all men are in counterfeiting a love which they do not really possess. Since it's just less kids, look around. Do we or do we not love each other? And before you give a super quick answer, think about how you relate to the people in this auditorium. Let love be genuine. The Apostle John, who leaned against the breast of Jesus in the upper room and was against his chest, Peter gestured for him, hey, find out who's going to betray you. He lived to be a really old man. And he lived past his vitality, and he couldn't walk anymore. And uh, he was bedridden, and they loved him, they venerated him. This is the Apostle John. He's the last of the apostles left in the church honored him and they would want to hear from him and as his strength was waning Eusebius tells us that they would pull him out in a gurney a historian they'd pull him out in a gurney and he would muster together his energy and they'd say give us something John and about all he could muster to get out was little children let us love one another sound like a footnote on first John does it not Well, it stands to reason it ought. He wrote it. But the last thing John wanted them to grasp was the first thing he wanted them to keep on their minds, and that was a love for each other. Now, the second frame in this healthy gospel culture is it looks like finding evil repugnant. Notice verse 9. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to that which is good. Our age is desensitizing us to what is evil. Our tolerance for acceptance is loosening. And we're getting farther and farther away from this verb in Romans 12, 9, abhor that which is evil. Now, it's a fascinating word. At its stem, it means hate. Hate what is evil. But then on the stem, it puts a prefix and makes a compound word with a new idea. It's kind of like hate with steroids. (laughs) I mean, really detest it. Hate it a lot. Abhor what is evil. By the way, hell will be the final resting place for evil 
And one of the glories of our God is that he hates evil. And we'll put it down once and for all in the consummation of all things when Jesus comes. And if he hates it and abhors it like that, we ought to as well. Do we find evil repugnant? Are we getting cozy with evil? Notice there's a couplet here. He also says, hold fast to that which is good. Hold fast to that which is good. This is a term used of a husband and wife in intimate clinging together. In intimacy and holy covenant before God, holding fast. Paul is essentially saying, we better be intimate with what is good and abhor what is evil. Is that how we are teaching the emerging generation how to live? The third frame of a healthy gospel culture is it looks like a contest for who can out-honor the other. Look at verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love this word outdo. I'll always be a competitive person. Um, I've never played anything for fun. Um, It's only fun if you win. It's funner if you destroy the opponent. (laughs) But anyway, that's an aside, really not related to Romans 12, 10, but related to the fact that I probably need to be sanctified a lot more than I am. (laughs) But here's a contest. This word outdo is extraordinary. What if I told you that the best marriages I know are full of fighting? (laughs) Two people fighting it out to see who can out-honor the other. Oh, you say, Eric, well, that's a cute little couplet. But I want you to know that Satan is playing for real and would love to destroy all of our families. And the simple discipline of a husband trying to honor his wife and a wife seeing to it that she honors her husband goes miles to create life and vitality in that marriage that is not present when there is such a quest. You see, Eric, I'm... My friend, you know, we're, we're told that we're beyond making friends in America and everybody's lonely and the mortality rates in America are going down because men after 50 years old are killing themselves. How, we've lost track of how to make a good friend. I'll tell you how to make a good friend. Get in a contest with somebody that you love that's your friend and see if you can out-honor them. You say, my work group is a mess. There's infighting, it's tragedy. Well, hey, change the calculus. Get that work group in a contest to see who can out-honor the other and see if that doesn't optimize what you're trying to do together in mission. And let your light shine in this way. Isn't it funny that the church hosts not the Hunger Games, but the Honor Games? Who wins? It's the one who out-honors the other. Are we looking around for opportunities to show honor? You know, a radar pings all the time collecting data. Is anybody pinging to discern 
Who can we honor today? What can we do this week? It isn't difficult to imagine what a contest like that does for the life and vitality of a church. The fourth healthy frame here is it looks like the maintenance of passion and service for Jesus. Look at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Where's your zeal needle this morning? Where's mine? Be fervent in spirit. Who's fervent in spirit this morning? Serving the Lord. Serving, do not be slothful in zeal, fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Healthy gospel culture looks like the maintenance of a passion and service for Jesus. This is about keeping spiritual fervor. Oh, see, Eric, I had that for 20 minutes in my 30s. Well, that's, that's great. This is about sustaining it and making it a habit of life. Have you ever run into sluggish, dispassionate yawners in God's family? There's a decent basketball player from inner city Baltimore. I may have told you this before. Forgive me if I have. It's just an iconic story in my mind. I thought of him this week. He came to Cedarville to play basketball. A much smaller school, you know, 1,000 kids when he came and in the middle of the cornfields. You talk about cultural shock. Poor Donnie, he just... And in, in practice one day, he just declined to such a low ebb of fervor. They were going through this drill and it's like, it was a defensive drill. It's like, And coach had watched it for all he could stand. He blew the whistle and stopped the drill. And he went right toward him. He said, Donnie, what's wrong with you? What are you doing? He said, I'm hungry. <laughs> it, just, it was all about his integration into a brand new place. And uh, coach lived to laugh about it several years later. <laughs> You ever ran into a Donnie in the body of Christ? If we would have been standing at the cross and watched those hours on that first Good Friday, if we would have been in the garden tomb and heard the angels say, he's not here. He's risen, just as he said. I'm confident we wouldn't be defending like Donnie. And there would be a fervency in our spirit and a zealousness in our service that would take us all the way home. I mean, it's that glorious to sustain us to those ends. The fifth frame is this. It looks like joyful and patient and prayerful sojourn through tough times. Look at verse 12. Rejoice in hope. 
Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. This triplet goes together. You say, how on earth can we be patient in tribulation? In tribulation, our first instinct, our first default is to be impatient. When is this going to be over? Patient in tribulation. How? Well, that relates to rejoicing in hope and constant in prayer. It's as we focus on eternal things and a certain sufficient Savior and we stay on our knees crying out for help in the middle of the tribulation that we soldier on, patient in tribulation. We know it's not going to last forever. We know that the suffering, we have already been here. Romans 8, 18, the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. We can do this. We can patiently endure as we rejoice in hope and are constant in prayer. Are you facing a hard thing this morning? There are certainly a lot of hard things to face. We've never met that we haven't sat in this room surrounded by people who are fighting battles and facing hard things in our broken world. Don't you ever forget that Jesus Christ is coming. Here's what he said. I will make all things new. We're headed back to Eden. That's the glory of our hope. And so we rejoice in that hope and we sustain our cries for help. And we are patient in the midst of our suffering. Ever talk to a sage about how they made it? You might get a real simple answer and walk away. Well, that was disappointing. I needed more than that. But then you'll sit in your car and think, wow, that was profound. How did you make it through all the stuff you went through? Well, I lived for eternity and I prayed. You can get a lot of mileage out of that. Enough to get us all the way home, which is what Paul's calling for here. And it's an expression of a healthy life in a healthy church. Two others, then we'll quit. It looks like a willingness to get involved in other people's lives. Look at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Look at verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We'll talk about hospitality as our last point. Contribute to the needs of the saints. This is a word, that's a koinonia word at its heart. Remember that Greek word, fellowship often said, is a word that means sharing. Sharing in the lives of the saints. How do we fellowship with other people's struggles? We are willing to associate with the lowly. There's an, uh, an author who speaks of biblical counseling issues named Kellerman who has a concept that's interesting. It, it first sounds odd, but the more you think about it, it's like, no, I think he's onto something. He says, the best helpers in counsel are those who are willing to get in the casket with them and walk forward to life. But I'll tell you what, there's a tendency that we all have that we don't want to get involved in the muck of other people's lives. We say to ourselves, I've got enough muck in my life. 
And here is Paul saying a healthy gospel culture gets its hands dirty in the muck of other people's lives. Is not too proud to get next to the lowly and help them forward. That's a healthy culture. And finally, it looks like an earnest pursuit of opportunities to be hospitable. Did you note that in verse 13? Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hospitality is a lost art and a grace. But there is yet a glory in being in someone's home and being affectionately received. And that glory is being lost on emerging generations. Yet putting your legs under someone's table is a catalyst for all kinds of encouragements. And isn't it amazing that through Jesus Christ, God has invited us to put our legs under his table. And what that cost in his son's death to bring that about is extraordinary. He says, pursue, seek it, chase after. That's what that verb means. Who's chasing after hospitality? You get a church committed to love and honor and among other things, chasing each other in hospitality, you have a healthy place. Is Calvary a healthy place? John Stott said, love is sincere, discerning, affectionate, and respectful. It is both enthusiastic and patient, both generous and hospitable, both benevolent and sympathetic. It is marked by both harmony and humility. Christian churches would be happier communities if we all loved one another like that. Let's be that church, ringingly clear on the gospel, with a robust gospel culture built on a pervasive conviction of the love of Jesus Christ poured out on us and in turn poured out eagerly for each other and before a watching world. Maybe you've run across a young mother that you didn't know her family and she just strikes you as the most doting mother selflessly pouring into her four or five or three or two children, whatever it is, and she's busying around, and you just note that there is a happiness on her visage simultaneous with the fatigue and all that she has done, and you say to yourself, self, that is one great loving mother. And it strikes you so much that you begin to comment on her to another person who knew her mother. And who then says to you, oh, you don't understand. All she is, is a product of the love that was shared with her. She can't help but be like that because of who her mother is. Paul's point in Romans 12 is that God in Christ has shared his love with us at such an extraordinary level. We can't help but bear the distinguishing marks of that love in loving other people and treating them with honor. Father, use your word to shape our lives and to shake us out of the lethargy of cultural affinity for selfishness and self-interest and thinking about me and mine first and most and neglecting to treat others like Jesus treated us. Come, Spirit of God, and make us to be the church 
we need to be at Calvary. And Lord, for those who've never put their legs under your table and received Jesus Christ as Savior, I pray that your Holy Spirit would run after them this morning. Move them to respond to Christ and experience his love and then move all of us to live marked by that loving experience. I pray in Jesus' name.